Hey everybody, welcome to Stumbling Towards Adulthood, our pop culture throwback. We look at all the music, movies, TV shows, and a few video games here and there. Events of a certain year, and it's all about our high school, or sorry, our middle school, high school, and college years. We start off in 1986, we're ending it with 1999, so we're almost to the end! It's a penultimate episode with 1998! I'm your host, Michael. Tony's on the other end. Yo, yo. Do you notice how different the episode is when we don't do it in the morning? <laughs> I have energy for once. Uh, slightly more energy. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was late coming home from work. I had to stay over, and I stopped at 7-Eleven, and I ate a chili dog the size of my head. And the vegan lifestyle was not going well. It is not going well. I have fumbled a few times along the way. Yeah, I, I, I'd say it's not going well to be, be certain if you're getting a 7-Eleven hot dog. Yeah. Yeah, do, do they still have? Do they still have Bahama Mamas? That used to be a running joke. We 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 tell them, hey, why don't you go to 7-Eleven and grab yourself, wrap your lips around one of those Bahama Mamas. What is a Bahama Mama? It was like this fat, spicy sausage they used to have at 7-Eleven. Oh, okay. It was really gross, actually. But yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like one of those things where I, I had a rough day and I was like broken inside, and I, I have these moments. I'm trying, people. I do choose some veg. Some people are like that at home, going, "So, so what? Eat meat." There's a reason why I chose, not just because it's a healthier lifestyle, but just in general, it bothered me. But uh, I broke today. Um, you don't need to know any of this. This is not why you listen to the show. <laughs> All right, let's launch like we always do with music of 1998. I'm trying as hard as possible to sound like that guy that hosted. Uh, you know, did the voiceover for "I Love the 80s." Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have his deep voice, but I had the cadence, I think. All right. Okay, so 1998 is a year that we said, yeah, ska is cool. We like it. We know what else we want. We want swing. And swing was everywhere in those fucking Gap commercials. And it only lasted like two years. We got over it pretty fast. Yeah, it was a weird kind of... Uh... I don't know. There's a weird kind of like, um, like, uh, like remembering of past, like past music and like uh, past culture and kind of like reband, rebranding and re, and like reblending it in a like modern like uh, culture. Like you know this love affair with like swing music and then also cigars. Yeah. And like things. Things from like a bygone era we're trying to bring back and like make it modern again. The lounge lizard basically had come back. Vegas baby. Well, a lot of it's because of swingers. That brought it to the mainstream, but that was always a growing subculture anyway with like hipster doofuses in their 20s. Right. It was already in full swing in LA at that point. Is that a pun? Is that that on purpose? (laughs) (laughs) No pun Nintendo. But uh, yeah, it totally uh, like brought it back to the forefront like the rest of the country, you know? Yeah, it's just funny. We had Big Bad Booty Daddy, the Squirrel Nut Zippers, um, which are always like the darker, more complex one, but they only had one hit. Most of these guys kind of had only had one hit, but I mean, Squirrel Nut Zippers really only had one hit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cherry Pop and Daddies out of Portland, which I saw. Um, oh, wow. Setzer, right? Brian Setzer was the other. Those are like the big four. Yeah, see, Brian Setzer's a weird one because he was always kind of doing like a like a, a retro thing, even in the '80s. He was, you know what I mean? So, but no, you, you're right. By by this time, he was doing the full on swing. He wasn't doing like '50s rock and roll anymore. He was doing like he was going beyond that, the '40s swing. So, 
for sure. Yeah, it's he so could, he could be in that group as well. I I will say if you have to balance out the two, there's a reason why swing music is still around. No, they're not in the top forty. Their albums don't sell a lot, but they're still constantly on tour because it usually skews older. They have been mm-hmm. at the uh, you know in the business longer. I think they have more skills, and you know with that many people in the band, you got to be able to book somewhere you can ask a higher price. So swing can get into like those classy halls. Whereas ska music was borderline punk, and it was a bunch of kids, and you know as they got older, they probably you know wore out their welcome, or they weren't that good, or they realized they weren't going to raise enough money to you know pay twelve people to be in a band. Yeah, for sure. It, 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 I mean, like bands with a giant horn section is always a weird thing. You wonder how they get started in the first place. You know, I mean, usually we think of bands like like rock bands, like four members you know, high school friends or something. It's weird. Like, how do you like, how do you like uh, recruit like a whole horn section and a rhythm section? It just seems unusual. It's definitely not like, like, like a, a rock and roll or a punk rock thing to do. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of it probably is born out of like band camp. Whereas it seems like swing was all these guys kind of getting together later in life. They probably put out ads. You had to really audition. That's why I think they're a little more polished. True. Yeah. No. Yeah. To be in a swing band, you do have to be an accomplished musician. Yeah. Gritty, like rock edge, where like you know somebody who from like a member of the Sex Pistols or the Clash maybe has been playing an instrument for forty years before they decided to like you know make it big. Whereas these guys are like doing it like their whole life. They're definitely uh, seasoned, uh, accomplished musicians for sure. And and those are all basically one hit wonder kind of bands. They might have had a couple other hits that like got on oh adult alternative, but you know for the top forty. 1998 is a really big year for one-hit wonders, and my favorite band of all time is a one-hit wonder, and it's Harvey Danger, a band I worship to no end. Only had three albums, but uh, Flagpole Sitter is the one that everybody knows. No one knows it's called Flagpole Sitter. They think it's called Paranoid or Paranoid or something. They're all coming to get me. Yeah, you know what I I, I do. That's like the the quintessential song that I ever I ever heard. But I remember when that was huge. Like I remember then, and, and I don't know if this was '98 or '99, but that E6, whatever that's like. I don't know the lyrics. Yeah, you are <laughs> almost you're psychic because that is literally what I have right after uh, Harvey Danger because it's that... weird because those two I always hear like either like back to back on the radio. I hear them all the time. I'd always get them confused. You know what I mean? Because they just it's not, it's not that they even sound similar. They just broke big at the same time. Yeah, and, and I think Eve 6 had a couple more hits. Really, I mean, if you brought up Eve 6, I know people are probably still really fond of them. Harvey Danger is only popular outside of that one song up here. Like, in Northern California that, to Seattle, that's about it. Well, speaking from somebody from the other coast, it was really popular, like, in the Northeast, too, at least in my, my uh, neck of the woods. And I didn't, see, I didn't really know what other kids are into, until I go to like a nightclub or a bar where there's people who are way different than me, and I heard that song at like a, like a nightclub where a bunch of like douchey top forty listeners were hanging out, and that song came on, and I swear like everybody knew the lyrics. I'm like, this is like an alt song. This, I can't believe you guys are all digging this. You know, I can't yeah. believe you all know the lyrics of the song, and well, that's it, just just a te- testament how popular it was at the time. You know, it's so funny because it was a throwaway song that was put on the disturbing behavior uh, trailer. It wasn't even on the soundtrack. It was just something somebody found at the last minute, just they're getting to promote it. And I think, I mean, that's why I went to go see Disturbing Behavior. I was, I was like, okay with it. But I was like, this song is fucking amazing. Like, I'm humming it at work. 
and I had to know who sang it, you know, and I listened to that album nonstop. And I remember when the second album came out, where uh, uh, King James version, I was like, this album's going to be huge because it's even better. And it didn't perform. The radio barely played "Sweet Sad uh, Sad Sweetheart" the radio rodeo, and I had the opportunity to see them with Better Than Ezra. And I was like, God, they're going to be around forever. I'll go see them next time. Nope, blew that shot. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, you, you know, it's weird. It's it must be frustrating to be like an A and R rep for a person. For, you know what I mean? Because you never know what the audience is going to latch onto, or I mean, you know, or what's going to be a hit based on your ear. Based on my year, I could never, I could never predict what's going to be popular because yeah. whatever I seem to like, nobody else likes, and vice versa. You know? Right. Well, I mean, I believe if their if their stuff had come two or maybe four years earlier, because they were like the last gasp of grunge. We always say that Silverchair was, but they were out of Seattle. They kind of had that look. Their videos looked a lot like Bush and stuff like that. And by the time they broke out, we were already moving on to new metal. So that second album came out in that explosion where everybody was listening to new metal. And, um, you know, looking at my list here, I have fucking Godsmack and Kid Rock, uh, System of a Down. Okay, I kind of like System of a Down, but a lot of this stuff, Everlast, the whole world had kind of moved on to this rap metal hybrid, which were insane for about four or five years. And I almost just, when I think about it, I'm like, what in the hell were we thinking as a country? <laughs> yeah, it's weird because it kind of made both worse. You know what I mean? Right. It kind of did, didn't, didn't, didn't do anything for either genre. They took what? I Beastie mean, it, Boys it, Beastie Boys, and uh, Faith No More, kind of like the the early guys in that mix. And there's, oh, and 311, they're so much better. And less well, you know, and then there was like Public Enemy and Public Enemy and Anthrax. And oh, right, they right, did right. a little earlier with, with the Judgment Night soundtrack as well. But I mean, it was just like it wasn't like a whole recreating a whole genre. They were just doing a collaboration for like a song. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So and then they went back to their respective, you know, genres of music, of music and did what they did. It's weird when you just when you just kind of blend everything together all the time. And that's kind of all that you do. It's like you kind of I don't know. It's uh yeah, I mean, I, I'm, all, I'm all about, like, fusion. I'm all about, like, you know... Like, right. Is it because they're douchebags? These guys... Most of these guys were fucking... This is during the rise of the extreme era. And I, and it just... It seems so, like... I mean, Juggalo's probably being the extreme douchiness of it all. I, I just... Right. I think that's why a lot of people cringe about this era, because everybody's like, extreme! And... Uh, no. Yeah, well, then there was other bands who weren't, like, technically, like, in the rap rock, like, pee bands like Creed... That were popular around oh, then. Oh right, that yeah. were just just outright douches. You know what I mean? You know, and uh, yeah, they weren't doing a rock. They weren't doing a rap thing, but they were. They were. They had still had the same bravado and douchery that that you know the rap rock guys had. Yeah. Uh, this is the year that the bands that were around forever. We were. I think we mentioned this around '89 or '91. Uh, the bands that existed before hair metal are the ones that lasted beyond it. So, like, we had Aerosmith, Van Halen, Def Leppard. Uh, technically, Motley Crue existed before, but they are also responsible for the hair metal. Those guys just kept yeah. going. But the most successful was Aerosmith and Van Halen, and both collapsed. Yeah, I mean, also, also the Rolling Stones. They, they had an album out. They had a tour out in 97. That's right. What was it, Voodoo Lounge or something? Uh, I think it's Bridges to Babylon. Oh, okay. If I remember. But I Van Halen is the one that crumbled because 
we went through the whole Sammy Hagar, David Lee Roth debacle at the 96 MTV Awards. Remember when they said, we're, you know, they didn't even talk to Sammy about it. He was already pissed at them because they're doing a greatest hits. And he's like, we're not even at that point in our career where we need to go do a greatest hits collection. And two, wait, all of a sudden you're bringing David Lee Roth back. So have you technically removed me from the band? Um, you're not telling me anything. So he just quit. And then David Lee Roth flaked on them and became really difficult. So that's when they hired Gary Sharone. <laughs> oh, huge mistake. Yeah, for sure. It was just it was a giant clusterfuck. And plus, I mean, a lot of people don't even realize that Gary Sharone from Extreme, they have like a really like you know they're they're really they're, I mean the most body of their work is hard rock kind of stuff. But everybody just knows them for more for more than words. Right. So think you're gonna so people are thinking you're getting this like uh like romantic crooner to be your lead singer. But he's really known. He's really majority of his work has been like hard rock, that kind of frontman vocalist thing, anyway. But you know, the majority of like Van Halen fans don't know that. You know. And that was that was kind of the destruction of the band, anyway. By this time, I think Eddie started becoming extremely difficult, and I know that he had suffered mouth cancer. And um, with Anthony Michaels left and went with uh, Sammy Hagar over to Chicken Foot, and, and the band is just. I've heard that their concerts are just abysmal mess. Didn't. Didn't one of our coworkers go? Uh, uh, what was the guy in the back room? Damn it, really tall. Hayden. He went and saw Van Halen, and he said that they were awesome. But I heard like horrible, horrible other things. Like Eddie just forgot how to play guitar halfway through the concert. I believe. It. I mean, the guy's been like an alcoholic. I'm not sure if that's like when he was started getting clean and sober, but he's battled alcoholism like you know for like his whole professional career. So yeah, it's hard to say. He's probably in some kind of like days, yeah, either drug and or alcohol. Yeah, you know, kind of stupid. It's hard to say. Um, Electronica broke out. I mean, this is when it really started to go mainstream. '99 is like the, the probably the peak year, but this is like when it started hitting the top forty. Everybody knew who the Chemical Brothers were, Fatboy Slim, Moby. Um, who else? Oh, missing? I'm missing some other people. Chemical Brothers. Chemical Brothers have a new album, new album and song out right right now. It's really oh, yeah? actually pretty good. Yeah, I mean, we had so, Prodigy in 96 and 97. That was big. But 98 is when, like, more bands, like, you know, American bands, stuff like that, just, like, just out of nowhere. Uh, Daft Punk really was big. Yep. Oh, yeah. It was, and, like, oh, Fatboy Slim and, as well. Um, you know, Norman Cook's his real name, but I think Fatboy Fat Boy Slim was was uh, uh, cranking out some hits. So, yeah, this 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 was the, the era of uh, the... Uh, the techno DJ, you know, for sure. Whenever I see an action movie from this time period, I have to cringe because it's always copying the Matrix. <laughs> it's, it's got the wire stunts, the the leather suits, and the electronica, and you're like, oh, no, right. <laughs> yeah, and this is before it was called EDM. They weren't calling it EDM back then. They were just like, everything was under the blankest techno. And then maybe there were some people called drum and bass. It was a little more, you know, fast tempo. But for the most part, everything was either either like you said, electronica or techno. Techno. Or, or I think over in the be the term. over yeah. in the UK they call it electro, right? I think so, electro or electronica. But I but in the US we always just call it techno. You know. The uh, some of the other one hit wonders I want to mention real quick. Um, New Radicals, I honestly thought was going to be a voice to be reckoned with. It was unique. It was different. It had it was it wasn't like any other band out at the time, and uh, they had one major hit, one minor hit, and then Greg Alexander realized he didn't want to be a star, so he disappeared, broke up the band, and then started writing singles for other people. So it's a, a one album wonder. 
Yeah, it's a weird move. You realize after, like, you know, you do all the promotion for your, you know what I mean, and all, like, the, the press to become famous and, like, to, uh, to have commercial success, and you realize it's not what you wanted. It's just, I don't know, it's strange. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I guess maybe once you got your money, you, you can take your ball and go home, I suppose. Yeah. But it, I don't know. It's just uh, it's weird. You know what I mean? Well, you know that. I, 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 it, go ahead. No, it's weird. Like, you you know, you want to have your artistic uh, credibility. And in order to get people to get the word out and get your songs out, you kind of do have to do a little bit of promotion. And I, I hesitate to use the, the, the term selling out, but you, I mean, it's part of the game. You can't have your music you listen to it, you know, widely distributed unless you widely distribute it. You know yeah. what I mean? So. What was it? He, yeah. You know, the lyrics about, you know, like backing uh, Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson, Hanson, stuff like that. And he was just kind of goofing on him. For some reason, he got, I remember watching him in an interview where he was like having an emotional breakdown. Like he got really insecure and upset and he was like apologizing to all of them. And I was like, dude. Yeah, I, also, I don't like the way he lumps like Beck and Hanson together. <laughs> it just because <laughs> like, it rhymes. It just because it rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, that bucket hat was iconic for him. And it was kind of popular in that era anyway because the Gilligan hat kind of came back. But I remember yeah. he, he wore that hat so he could kind of shield himself in a way. as like his uh, Linus and his blanket. Right. Yeah. You know, he's, I think he often had sunglasses on too. It's the way he kind of, you know, hid. Yeah, for sure. The uh, Now, these aren't one-hit wonders, but I just remember they had a, two or three hits. And I listened to them the other day, and they still hold up so well. I know a lot of people give... Um, top 40 mainstream rock, you know, the stuff that appealed to women is kind of like, ugh, like Third Eye Blind, and we talked about, um, you know, like the jangle rock genre. Um, Fastball is one that I think still holds up very well, and uh, I wish more people remembered them. Yeah, I mean, sometimes a well-written song is a well-written song. It doesn't matter you know, who it's coming from or how long it's on the charts, you know what I mean? A good song, be it a pop song or whatever, is is a good song. That's a well written song, and it's you know I mean it's uh, it holds up. You hear on the radio, you know whether you've heard it before. I guarantee if I put that song on now on the radio now, my kids heard it for the first time because they never heard it. I'm like us, oh, this, this song's pretty good. I like it. It's, it's, it's a legit song. Whether you're a fan of rock, pop, etc., it's just kind of you know it's just it's well crafted for sure. Yeah, I heard someone bitching about Vertical Horizon, and I was like, look at the time. It was a great song, and I still think it holds up, but the problem is they played it 10 million times. I try to keep that in mind, too, when I play songs to my kids. Like, they've never heard Stairway to Heaven before. I can't like I can't hear this song for a thousand, five, the fifth time, but for them, it's brand new. Yeah, yeah. And kids, they love to repeat things. That's why a lot of these songs, I think, were popular. I think about some of the one-hit wonders, and there was a song from this year, I'm pretty sure it's from this year, that drove me up the fucking wall, and I heard it the other day, and I was like, how did this ever, ever get in the top 40? And it was that, who is Johnny Ray? Who is Faye Ray? Who is Johnny Ray? Who wants to know? Who wants to know? I don't. Please go away. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of songs. Oh, God, what a believe. shitty song. I can't believe there are... They were ever made, let alone, like, you know, popular. Yeah. Um, in hip-hop, we have the debut of Jurassic 5, maybe the greatest hip-hop band, I think, of my life. Really close. A uh, uh, tie with, like, you know, Tri-Quad Quest. And, um, but there's something, I think, I think different about Jurassic 5 is that they appealed to alternative audiences, too, and they were also old school. Yeah, that, that was really popular from, for, like, a lot of people. Because I remember my roommate at the time, I was in, living in Biloxi, I guess it was in 1999. 
and um, he was like he was a DJ, like like on the techno level sort of. And um, if you're like if you're in a DJing, that's that's a band to listen to because they have two really good DJs in uh, Cut Chemist and uh, the other the other DJs eluding me right now. But Cut Chemist and the other DJ really, Newmark, really, right? There you go, New, Newmark and Cut Chemist were like really accomplished and, and like legit DJs. And then they had these fantastic MCs uh, and lyricists. And like, uh, you know, really did take you back a few years earlier when you could rap like uh, harmonically, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, so, so like you have all these, uh, all, all these uh, rappers like rapping in harmony, which is a really cool effect. And that was really a testament to their individual and group skill. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's really it, cool. Well, it reminds me of the doo-wop bands because you have like Charlie Tuna, with like the baritone, and then as you work your way down, you have different, you know, lighter tones or whatever. And right, right. Um, I mean, they kind of touched upon this a little bit in um, Hello Nasty um, in Beastie Boys. Uh, I know Paul's Boutique is the one that everybody says is the greatest album of all time from them. But for me, I think Hello Nasty is better. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they, they, they had an amazing de- uh, a DJ, um, Mixmaster Mike. They had amazing wow. videos, and their flow was more harmonic, like you know the way uh, um, Jurassic Five was doing them. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it, it was very. Yeah, I guess that's, that's a good analogy. They are similar to like to like Duop, where they have a couple rappers who have who have like different different speeds, you know, and and also different uh, different depth of tone in their voice as well. And they they all found a way to make make it work, and uh, you know, really kind of. Uh, you know, in, in, in integrate them properly into like a really well, well, well crafted song for sure. The uh, and another one of those very short lived bands. I mean, they're, they're the hip hop version of Harvey Danger for me because they basically had one big hit and you know, just slowly faded away, even though they're critically acclaimed, they have a strong following, but they just they can only hold it's really hard to hold together a band like that, too. There's so many members. And they kind of right. want to break off and go onto their own. It's kind of common, it seems like, in the hip hop industry, is you kind of just go off on your own. Well, the, the Cut Chemist, the DJ, did solo stuff, and he did stuff with with another D, with with DJ Shadow, another Bay Area DJ, and they would kind of collaborate and do their own stuff and make their own albums. I don't know if the other members, I maybe New, I think New Mark has done some some things solo too. I don't know if the other members have had their same kind of success on the solo level. As you know, maybe as, as the two, two DJs, but no, yeah, you're right. I think they had a follow up album after that big one in '98, and then maybe maybe a third. Yeah, the, the last one but... I believe was 2005, Power and Numbers, and they did they did a single I think with Dave Matthews Band like a few years later, and then that was it, just that one single. And they keep they do reunite for concerts, but they never be able to seem to be able to put an album together, which is a bummer. Yeah, I mean, they do remind me a little bit of like maybe um, the Far Side or Souls of Mischief in a yeah. way. You know what I mean? As far as their style, um, I mean, not not you know not exactly like they're they're biting them or copying them. They they do they just remind you a bit of them. You can make the same case to sound a little bit like Top Local Astro. We did the new school. Yeah. Well, you and I, we I don't I wouldn't say that we're like underground hip hop fans, but it does seem like the bands that you and I connect to more are part of the West Coast underground. Um, like people under yeah. the stairs, the Chicharrones out of Portland. Um, if you like Jurassic Five, I highly suggest Ugly Duckling. Even though people think they're corny because they're kind of a funny band and they are clean. I'm not saying Christian, but they're clean. 
and uh, language arts crew are not clean, but they also have that layered sound, and they use tons of old-school samples, which is what Jurassic 5 brought back. But not only just using old music, they were using clips from movies and comic books and really, like, taking what the Wu-Tang Clan was doing with their, like, martial arts samples and just cranking it up to another level. Yeah, there was, like, a, a slew of good underground uh, hip-hop bands back, back in the day, like Funk Dubious. And there was another one, too. Fuck, that's very, that came out around the same time. Oh, man, I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember. It was two guys, like a black guy and, like, a Latino guy. Shit, it's going to bother me. I'll remember it later. You're not talking about Cypress Hill, are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. But it was, like, it was more and more in the vein of, like, um, of like Jurassic 5. Gotcha, okay. Like, well, maybe we'll remember it later and we can recommend it. Um, on the exact opposite end of the universe, we have DMX with his big debut. And I, uh, yeah, I, uh, for some reason, owned that album and i don't know why i think because i don't know I, I just like i was hanging around with a lot of younger kids where i was working and i was listening to their music and i just it kind of like earworms in but if there was a juxtaposition between what jurassic 5 was doing is dmx he was really in your face loud and aggressive it was catchy but i don't think it was very well written no it was like a really like uh like bravado I, that, that's what I got from it I mean he was okay I guess as you know as a rapper but I just it just reminded me of douchery and bravado and I cannot think of him without thinking of a friend of mine like all my friends we were all like hanging out in front of an other friend's house and a friend of mine this guy Brent drove away he was pissed off because we didn't, weren't going to hang out with him or do what he wanted to do so he drove off blasting a DMX song <laughs> get at me dog whatever those and I always I always Forever to this day, I always had him tied with that song. Like, all right, later, dorks, and turned, cranked up, get at me, dog, and drove off, <laughs> and peeled out. And I'm like, that. All my, I would tell my friends, like, oh, there goes a cool guy. That's a cool <laughs> move right there, you know. I can't believe that he was a movie star, too. I watched uh, Cradle to the Grave the other day because it was an assignment for my other podcast, <laughs> Video Nights, and I was like, I don't want to watch this. Damn it. And I watched it, and I was Maybe like, another one, too, oh. like, like Romeo Mutt. Romeo Must Die, was he in that too? Yeah, or, but uh, barely. He's like in a five-minute scene, and all of a sudden he got escalated to A-list, or not A-list, but B-list of uh, studio films. Like, he did that one with uh, Seagal, and uh, then he did Cradle to the Grave, and I was like, oh, no, he actually had some charisma. But he does that thing, like, usually when people who can't act, they have something they do physically to create constant movements so they're not stiff. Not like they use their eyebrows over the top eyebrows or they use their hands too much. He does that thing where he nods his head a lot and looks like he's chewing gum. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're compensating. Damn it. Yeah, it kind of like like rolls his shoulders and stuff too. Yeah. Like, Fronting. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> um, what else I got? Oh, uh, Rob Zombie breaks out on his own, put out one good album, and then fuck all to the next. I mean, just the rest of it is just unlistenable garbage. He makes unwatchable movies. I know some people love it, but I think those people are a little oof. Uh, you like to watch people get tortured. That one, he you made, know, yeah. I I keep giving his movies a chance, thinking like maybe it's something I'm not getting. You know what I mean? Because he's got he definitely has a cult following. Yeah, he sure and loves white trash, doesn't keep, he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and he loves the '70s too. Everything has to be set in the '70s, even though it doesn't make sense for him to set a certain movie in the '70s. It's just that he's had such a fondness for that era. That he always has to have something set in the seventies, and uh, yeah, it just doesn't like. Sometimes it just doesn't make sense, and it's just not like historically accurate. You know what I mean? He's 
you know, he's a hard time having finding this like the props and the setting to match the era that it's supposed to be set in. Yeah. But he kind of keeps doing it, and it's like everybody keeps like he has such a cold following that I keep giving it a chance. I'm like, I just wasted another two hours <laughs> again. You got me again. Yep. I you remember know? he almost did the crow around the time that he did this album. He was gonna do like the crow three and set in the future, but the budget was gonna be fifty million dollars, and they balked at that. And I was like, thank God you didn't give him fifty million dollars because he already fucking wastes five million dollars. <laughs> What, what was his brother's yeah. name? Remember how uh, Ra was in horror and his brother did sci-fi and they had that one big hit uh, when the worlds collide? Power Man 5000. Oh, he was, yeah. That was a really good band. Power Man 5000. I remember he had like this spike kind of, spiky kind of like fluorescent colored hair. I'm like, that's Rob Zombie's brother or cousin or something. Like, spider. Get out of here, that guy? Yeah, right? His yeah, name's Spider or something? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember like he like his one guy in the video looked like a Ming the Merciless. That was, like, <laughs> that was the villain in there, like his long fingernails. Yeah. I, don't know why I remember. I, remember I don't even know if it's from the right year. We might be off a year, but I know that right around the time Power Man Five Thousand came out, that we had Static X, and I couldn't tell you the difference between the two bands for a really long time. I was just about to say that, like, yeah, like, 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 there's a difference. They might as well be the same group. <laughs> now, somebody who came out this year with their debut. I think, I'm pretty sure it was a debut. Um, Queens of the Stone Age is a band that everybody knows, everybody likes, but for some reason, they always seem to be on the fringe. They had a couple decent hits, like in 2001, but they always seem to be like just on the edge of like greatness. And I think they're a niche band. They're like, you know how they have a comedian's comedian? Like, oh, all these great comedians yeah. know this one guy is kind of obscure. It's like that with Queens right. of Stone Age. All these big bands know how great Josh Home is. Yeah, I guess, I guess you, they're, they're like the Mitch Hedberg of rock. You know what I mean? They're yeah. Like, yeah. They're, they're like, yeah, they're really good songs. I mean, like, you know, Josh Home's an accomplished guitarist, great vocalist. You know what I mean, got a great edge to his voice. He's, it's really, it's a really cool sounding voice. He can, he can, he's, he's got great pitch. He can like hit high notes. And, you know, he's not like, uh, he's not a crooner. He's not like, he's not like a typical rock singer but he definitely he, he, he definitely's got a great voice and right he writes yeah. great music and you know he, does, he has his own he does his own side project with eagles of death metal you know kind of a, you know it's, well he yeah, did them crooked vultures did. too and them crooked vultures and he was in bands prior he was in like like uh Caius, he was in that band oh, okay before, um, before uh queens of stone age so he's got like some you know he's been he's been He's been doing it for years prior. This he kind of like reminds that. me of Mike Patton in the way that he approaches music. Not just in the way that he sings, because Mike Patton can hit all over the place. But, you know, he had Mr. Bungle. He's writing scores for movies. He's off doing these other things. And, I, and that Josh Holm kind of seems like, you know, the next generation version of Mike Patton. Yeah, well, he, like, Queen of the Stone Age kind of evolved. And they, they, they're, a lot of, they're put in, like, the, the genres of stoner rock which bands like Fu Manchu are in and stuff like that, even though there's really no... They do sound... Fu Manchu and Queen of the Ace do sound a little bit similar, even though there's no real relation. But um, they, they are kind of put in that... Uh, it used to be called Stoner Rock, now it's kind of... The, the, the term is evolved like desert rock, you know yeah. what I mean? Which he, he is from New Mexico, so, you know, you know be that as it is. But, yeah, he's, uh, he's kind of like an unfairly weak in the, in the Stoner Rock. I, I think he's, uh, he's, he's way more accomplished talent such a dismissive you know category <laughs> um bare naked ladies the last thing in the music i swear because we're going long on music but this is a really good year for music or at least interesting year for music bare naked ladies finally breaks through the top 40 with a massive hit and whenever someone says it's been i always break into the song and i just i cannot help I myself that song was so massive and i still have trouble like how did he rap that fast 
I remember hanging out with a black guy, and who didn't who hated all like all of our music. You know what I mean? Like he only listened to rap. He only but he loved the song. He's like, I don't care. This is some good rapping, man. He's like, look. He's like, I'm never gonna play this in my car, and I'm never gonna play this around my other friends who aren't you guys. You know what I mean? But he's like, this is a guilty pleasure. I'll put this song on in headphones and, and you know jam out to this. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> like, like yeah. So as a testament from like a guy who only listens to rap, he he gave this he gave this song secret props. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they still have a strong hold in like like a niche kind of thing too. It's weird. Like the Canadian bands always seem to hold on to this cult audience for a very very long time, because arguably. There's no reason for Rush to have this much of a fanatical following for 45 years. They had two hit songs. Come on. And he has a very high uh, falsetto voice. Oof. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like the musicians. Musicians, they are like, you know, everybody, Neil Peart, the drummer, everybody like holds him to the gold standard. If you're yeah. a drum fan, you got to listen to Neil Peart. <laughs> okay, well, whatever. But, yeah. I was, yeah, I was thinking that, though. We have, we have him... We have, or sorry, Rush, him, huh? Uh, we have Rush, we have Sum 41, we have Our Lady Peace and Bare Naked Ladies, which are like the kings of, hey, we're going to stick around forever, or like, um, just like these minor cult audience in America, but massive in Canada, so people still hear us on a regular basis. I mean, yeah, you have like the Tragically Hip and some other... Oh, right, yeah, I just discovered the Tragically Hip, and I was astounded by how good they were. Oh no, yeah, for real. They're, they're like, I think I think the reason like why Canadian bands say pop in Canada is because they've only have a couple, of, like, like you know maybe you know maybe a couple that's like Bachman Turner Overdrive, yeah, well, I mean, stuff like well, that. Well, like Brian Adams, yeah. Brian Adams held it on for a lot longer well, than I ever expected. Right. So because there's only a handful of artists who come out of Canada and make it big, they kind of like they're holding they're holding reverence over there. And yeah, yeah. You know, want to keep them afloat. They have a huge growing nerd rock. What do you call it? Nerd core? Not nerd rock. Nerd rap scene. And they're really good. Oh, wait, I, gotta get, I gotta get you some of these bands because I found them by accident. And I was like, these guys are insanely skilled. They talk about really dorky shit that I love. I just learned that like Logic is not a nerd core rapper. I just, I just, I, I was only, bas- I never heard him rap. I was just basing the way he looked. I'm like, oh, this guy is a nerd core? And I was like, no. I'm like, oh, okay. Just because he looks like a nerd? I'm like, well, yeah, that's kind of the assumption I was going on. <laughs> I guess that, that's my own prejudice and victory. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah, it's like when people walk up to me and like, you look like you're good with computers. Fuck you. I, I mean, I am. I am good with computers, but fuck you for that judgmental <laughs> stereotyping. <laughs> I always feel like a tick afterwards because I'm like, well, technically I do know the answer to that. All right. <laughs> I feel, yeah, anybody who's like happens to have glasses, though, I feel like, hey, you look like you're smart. I'm like, why? Because my vision's bad? Yeah, I was or like, yeah, glasses? it's just a vision thing. It doesn't mean you're intelligent. You're <laughs> just maybe red in the dark. All right, so movies, because they're finally getting their good guy going on forever. I'm going to edit some of this. Uh, Half-Baked, we have been waiting, uh, I don't know how long, to talk about Half-Baked. We keep hinting at this. And right. it's better than any Chicha Chong movie, even the first oh, one. The first one's good. But the rest suck ass. But I remember Dude, reading... Half-Baked half is my Citizen Kane. I, I love half <laughs> Really? Wow. Well, Citizen Kane is boring, so I'm not sure how you want to... But all right. I, as, as far as like people holding it in reverence yeah, yeah, yeah. regard. That's, that's so true. I remember reading in Maxim Magazine, Hey, kids, before you can just click, 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 there's porn. The worst porn you've ever seen in your life. We got Maxim Magazine... And like four other copycats around the late uh, 90s, early 2000s. That was the only way that you could see like, oh, Yasmin Bleeth. 
I'll tell you about Yasmin Bleeth later. Yasmin Bleeth in a bikini or whatever. You're like, oh my god, I gotta get this. And I read an article where um, it was Jim Brewer and Dave Chappelle doing a really, really long interview about Half-Baked and how they said it's been a decade since they've done any weed comedies and they thought the time was right. And I remember when I saw it was coming out against Deep Rising and Hard Rain, two big budget movies. Um, oh, and Desperate Measures. All four of these movies were much bigger. Um, and they're, they're like, oh, okay, Half-Baked isn't going to make a dime. Guess what happens? They all cannibalize each other. They're not very good. And Half-Baked ends up number one. Yeah, man. And it's got a, had a cult following for years after. I mean, even after it left the theater. I mean, it's, that was just like, it was, it was like kind of like Office Space. It was just one of those movies you kept watching. Because it was so funny. And it was, it rang true on so many levels for so many different things. It was like, you know, I mean, without get, get, delving in each bit, that was hilarious. It was just like, you know, it was re- really funny. It was great, great writing by Neil Brennan, you know, who was, you know, Dave Chappelle's writing partner, who both went on to make the Chappelle show. And it was, yeah, it was just, it was fucking, fucking hilarious. It was like, you know, it was, uh, what's, who else was in that? Um, what's his face? We have John Stewart, of course, well, with the notorious, have you ever done it? Oh, we. Oh, well, yeah, oh, yeah. As far as the cameo is concerned, yeah, him, yeah. Uh, we, Willie Nelson, Snoop Dogg, and et cetera. Yeah. Harlan Who's Williams. the other guy? Who's... Everybody forgets about Harlan, Harlan Williams. Williams. And there's Guillermo Thank Diaz, you. who um, I think had potential, and for some reason I just don't see him anymore. Yeah, he was in he was in a TV show, I can't remember, not too long ago, like a primetime uh, drama. Yeah. Um, I always joke that I'm going to quit my job and go, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, that that is the most epic way to quit, for sure, you know. <laughs> Totally. I, I, I've, I've won, every time I think about quitting, that's the way I want to do it. But, you know, speaking of Canada from earlier, Harlan Williams is like a god up there, and he only had a brief moment in America. We had Rocket Man, Half Baked. Uh, I think he had a small part in There's Something About Mary, which everybody remembers. Yeah, yeah. And then he just kind of disappeared. Man, yeah. yeah, he does stand up still. Um, I watched him not too long ago on a, a, a YouTube uh, clip. Uh, this comedian, Burt Kreischer, does a segment called Something's Burning, and he had him as his guest, Harlan Williams, to help him cook some stuff. But uh, that's the last time I've seen him. But, you know, he's, I guess he's done a few things here and there. But uh, yeah, he doesn't I, look the same. You know, he looks a little older, which happens as you get older. Age, you know? He, but, uh, what's it, five years ago, he did a stand-up special for... Netflix. This is one of their first stand-up specials where it was just him in the desert with a camera that was moving around constantly, and it just kept triggering my motion sickness, and it wasn't funny. You just kind of need... And that was experiment. Can you do stand-up? Can you be funny without an audience to bounce off of? And I will say, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I guess it depends on the strength of your material, but you, sometimes you kind of have to do no, especially if you're telling stories. You have to know when there's a laugh break to fully for it to fully digest. It doesn't me- doesn't necessarily need for you to qualify whether it's funny or not. You like need the laughter, but you do have to need when it, when you kind of segue into the next story. You know, if that's the if that's the style of comedy you're doing, you know. Yeah, I um something about Mary was the movie where I honestly thought I was like it's a good trailer, but I'm not sure it's going to be a hit. The Fairley Brothers broke out with Dumb and Dumber, but then Kingpin was a huge flop, even though I think it's absolutely hilarious. The uh, Something About Mary, they were like, this is basically our last chance to make a studio film, and they knocked it out of the park. That thing played for like four months straight. Dude, that, they can never have that film today. It is so 
you know, insensitive on so many levels. You know what I mean? As far as like the one guy, um, the brother, yeah, being like, yeah, being mentally challenged and whatnot, and all this kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah, that that's only something that could only be, and it wasn't that long ago. This is the funny part. It wasn't like this is fifty years ago. You know, you yeah. could have you could have make a movie like that today. It's crazy. Yeah, but that gave them carte blanche to make whatever they wanted to for about ten years after that, and it's all shit. <laughs> all gone crap. It's weird how you have like these kind of brother uh and you have like the Wachowski brothers making stuff too and like 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 the duo the brother teams are the two and what's the other Cohen brothers like the three brother duos are making movies yeah you know, that was kind of a big deal the only the only ones who've held up though are the Cohen brothers because I think they have a little yeah, more quality control right yeah their body works a little more critically acclaimed for sure the uh now there was a buddy comedy in 1996 that I desperately wanted to see. I didn't get to, and I thought it was going to be great. It didn't do very well. It was called Bulletproof. Damon Wayans, Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler is an action star, sort of. And it was a flop, yeah. and everybody thought it was going to be the end of Adam Sandler. And then he comes back in 1998 with his best film, though Punch Drunk Love is pretty damn close. Um, Wedding Singer is a way to do nostalgia, romance, yeah. And make it likable, original, and fun. No, for sure, it was it was definitely uh, it was definitely a really legit rom com. If you're gonna if you're gonna classify it as a rom com, it's really hard to pigeonhole that. If you want to call it a dramedy or or a rom com? It's definitely more more comedy than it is. Comedy. Yeah, but, but is it? It was. Uh, it's weird that we were nostalgic that. for something that was only 13 years prior. It yeah. Filmed in '98 or set '98 yeah. or sorry, set '85, released in 1998. That is, if right now, if we were to go to a studio and say, "Hey, do you want to make a movie about 2006?" <laughs> no. <laughs> Who's nostalgic yeah. for yeah, 2006? Yeah. That is pretty. That is true. That's pretty weird. Because back then we were having the full-on '70s revival going on back in the day. Everyone was like, you know, wearing '70s era or like uh, not or like '70s inspired. Outfits, Demi's inspired like things. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it usually takes what twenty five years for nostalgia to really kick in. Um, I just can't believe how long the eighties have held on because basically, Wedding Singer is the first that eighties nostalgia. We had what uh, two hundred cigarettes like the next year, and then it slowly started trickling. But we held on to the seventies for a little bit longer. But from it's been twenty one years and we're still insane about the eighties. I just even today now well, it seems like it's stronger now than it ever has been. Now we're kind of we're like kind of hovering. We're going back from the late eighties to early nineties, going back and forth. They're like struggling to see which one holds dominance. So I yeah. feel like a lot of like I know people who are like who are who grew up or were born in the nineties or like, you know, you know, rocking nineties stuff, but then there were still people even I mean doing the late eighties all the way back to mid eighties, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just it's okay. funny that that movie was so big, and it basically gave him carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. He kind of had, he kind of had a I don't know like a a rhythm, a style that he would do with his movies, kind of like the way a musician does with their songs. And mm. I think that's why people started to get tired of him is because he stopped trying to do new stuff. He just had a formula. He kept hitting it over and over and over, but you could tell he was not trying anymore. That he was like. How much am I getting paid, and where do I get the vacation while filming this? Right, no, totally. Yeah, if that's if there's one case to make about probably his last five movies that he made, you can say that they're definitely formulaic. For sure. Yeah, I do the, like the, some the, of the Netflix the stuff, though. The um, 
the uh, what is it, the Leibowitz tale, the, the Meyerowitz stories. Um, uh, that was really really good, and I like the, uh, the the week of with him and Chris Rock. I really enjoyed that one too. But I gotta tell you, that right. the ridiculous. Well, I, I, I wouldn't call. I wouldn't call, it, I wouldn't call. I wouldn't call that an Adam Sandler movie. You know what I mean? He was in it. You know what I mean? He That's was true. That was a Noah Baumbach yeah. movie, and. I guess I guess you always have that formula. I guess kind of I haven't seen the new one, Murder Mystery, but you can kind of see it with uh, Sandy Wexler, where he's like, let's play an extremely annoying, unlikable character, and you know, like little Nicky yeah. kind of set that trend. Right. Well, right. Waterboy. You know, well, I, Waterboy did it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, I will. I will say the the uh, the the do over was pretty funny, but I say that's mostly. Uh, I'd say like uh, David Spade is doing most. Of oh yeah, he's that. carrying that you know one. Mean? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I'm, I'm a huge David Spade fan, so you know. How are you with Lebowski? Oh, um, see, I caught on to that late. I caught on to that a few years after, you know, after it was out, and I wasn't aware of it when it first came out. And you know, to be honest, you know, people had a, had even even when I first like probably saw it, maybe in 2001 or 2002. I wasn't really 100% sure if I liked it or not. You know what I mean? It already had a cult following at that point. And then after a while, I, 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 I kind of like it. I, I'm into it. I'm not as uh, devoted as some of the fans are yeah. um, who like swear by it. But it, it, it was decent. It was interesting. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, but when I, upon first viewing, I wasn't like, oh, it's all right, I guess. Yeah, like, I just, sitting, the, the reviews, most amazing thing ever. Yeah, everyone was like, the reviews are so strong and it just didn't open very well. And people just kept talking about it. I rented it, and I was like, I don't know, man. It just, I didn't, uh, I, I have a rough time with Coen Brothers sometimes. There's some movies that I absolutely adore. I love The Hudsucker Proxy, which is their most unsuccessful movie. I love Fargo, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Blood Simple, stuff like that. I think the crazier they get, sometimes it's a harder for me to get into. And... Um, they have a rhythm and a tone that they're looking for, and Big Lebowski is one where I almost—I always feel like they don't know exactly what they're trying to do, that they're a little lost, and for some reason that's why the fans have latched on because it's kind of weird and unfocused. Yeah, it's kind of all over the place. I mean, it, it definitely doesn't seem as Coen Brothers esque as say maybe like Fargo does. You know yeah. What I mean? So um, I always feel like I, it I goes. Guess, maybe, maybe that's why it's nice appeal. It feels like it goes with Repo Man, the one with Emilio Estevez. It's like that weird off-kilter underground world that we know nothing about, and it's just like strange for almost strangeness sakes. Yeah, no, because it definitely does delve upon like these fringe characters who you you feel like you've kind of run into before, but you're not actually friends with them. But you know what I mean? There's these kind of people, you know, these fringe characters you see at your local bowling alley or diner. You know, you wonder what their lives are like. You know, outside of that diner, from the, the three seconds that you interact with them, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Kind of, I don't know, but uh, no, I mean it's, it's definitely out there. I didn't realize, you know, it, it was people are, you know, like hey, it ties a whole room together. I didn't realize it was so quotable because I didn't find that quotable <laughs> the first time I watched it. I was actually quoting. Oh yeah, we did say that. That's right. You know. The uh, I'm gonna give it another shot because I haven't seen it in 21 years or 20 years or whatever. I don't. It just it's something I think I maybe I I'll enjoy more as an adult. Because I saw this like when I was, I think, I was still in college at the time, and I wasn't appreciative of more difficult, challenging films. Right. No. Yeah. It was. 
Yeah, it was definitely out there, and like you know, it was. I guess technically it was a comedy. Some parts were, I guess, funnier than others. But upon like you know, viewing it a couple years ago, I'm like, all right, this is this is better than I gave it credit for the first time I watched it. Yeah. I wasn't ready for it. I didn't know what to make of it. You know what I mean? So. Uh-huh. The uh, now thinking of, speaking of movies that you couldn't uh, predict that it was going to be actually kind of good in Twisty Turny, um, we went to Wild Things because we're young. Horny guys, and we heard that Nev Campbell and uh, yes, Denise Richards had a sex scene, and we're like, "Well, hello!" And uh, you watch it now, and you're like, "Yeah, it's got that, but it's got this crazy twisty turny. Everybody's stabbing each other in the back. It's got great performances by Kevin Bacon, Matt Dillon, Bill Murray of all people." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of those ones I've never seen, despite the lesbian scene in it. I. I've never seen it, and it just, it's never come on. I've never had premium cable, so it's never. So it would be, have to be something I would rent, and then I wouldn't want like the, the rental clerk looking at me funny. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. And there's been like so, four of those. That's one of those like Poison Ivy where they just keep making sequels. You're like, why? Why do you keep doing this? <laughs> um. All right, player's choice. I'm going to throw three movies at you. You choose the one to talk about because we're, <laughs> we're running long. Truman Show, Saving Private Ryan, and Rush Hour. Ooh, um, geez, that's a good one. Uh, I just want to talk about Rush Hour. Okay, Rush Hour. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, I didn't know that Chris Tucker was going to be that big and then stop making movies that don't have the word rush and hour in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, he was, he was. On top of the world at that point, you know what I mean? And it's funny him doing something with like a Jackie Chan because it's like Jackie Chan is like the ultimate straight man, as in like, you know, English isn't his first language. He's definitely, when you think of Asians, you think of them being very prim and proper by the book and not, and then you, he's teamed up with the most outlandish, you know, devil may care kind of character. Yeah. And it, it really worked well. It's, you know, it's pretty. It's, it's definitely funny by you know by by their contrast and personalities. Well, originally it was going to be Martin Lawrence. The studio really, yeah. really wanted Martin Lawrence, and Brett Ratner pushed for Chris Tucker. He says, "Look, he's going to be a hell of a lot cheaper. He's easier to work with." Because I guess Martin Lawrence started becoming kind of difficult, and frankly, uh, he's going to be the next voice you want to you know discover. No, yeah, I mean Martin Lawrence would have worked. He, he he definitely would have been good. But yeah, as far as if you're like a big studio, you know what I mean. You're looking to save money. You can't go wrong with Chris Tucker. No, I'm past in the beginning. In the beginning, it's know? a surprise because they already had Money Talks the year before, which was a surprise hit, and he was a breakout. Everybody loved him in that. You think that would have been a given? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I mean, he's uh, he was you know also great on Friday, but like he yeah, wasn't commanding the, the kind of paycheck that Mark Lawrence was commanding at, at, at that time. So, no, yeah, no, it's a no-brainer to go with like you know. Yeah. But, um, the only thing I want to say about Saving Private Ryan is phenomenal movie, unbelievable cast, but it brought the shaky cam into the world of movies, and it has not gone away, and I cannot stand it because it makes me nauseous. Well, it really does. It does have like a visceral effect. It really does hammer home like what it would like feel like to be in a war with like explosions going on, you know. I, I apologize you. for the beagle. No, no, I hear you pop up in the background. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All 
Um, okay, so over in TV, we have the end of Seinfeld, disappointing everybody, except me, apparently. And I was like, no, that makes sense. That's exactly how these characters should have gone out. It was weird about, like, the last Seinfeld episode. And also, I think Frank Sinatra died at the exact same moment, the same night, as their uh, last episode. So they each stole each other's thunder. You know, it was really bizarre. Wow. So Because everyone was talking about both of them. You know, hey, Frank Sinatra died. Seinfeld's last episode, can you believe it? And, you know... It was a little bit anticlimactic, uh, Seinfeld last episode. I think we all, I don't know what we were all expecting. You know what I mean? But, but considering it's a show based on nothing, as they, they, as they claim themselves. Yeah, I mean, all the characters were self-absorbed jerks, self-destructive. I mean, it's the only, yeah. the only way to end it is that they get punished for their terrible behavior, and they end it by bickering at each other the whole time. Right, I don't know why everybody expected some kind of grand exit. I mean, I don't know, some kind of final, you know, amazing like you didn't have moments of that throughout the whole entire you know run why would you expect it now yeah it was like the anti-sitcom so kind of just it's like the way married children was it was an anti-sitcom it wanted to rub your face in the cliches and and flip it on you yeah no totally and that's i mean it was fine i was fine with it i was like yeah you know oh man what a a ripoff but like the one thing i remember like no one was really talking about it because frank sinatra just died you know (laughs) And uh, and like everyone, that kind of definitely stole their thunder. You know? Do you remember when he retired his act? Seinfeld went on like four months later on HBO and retired everything that he had been doing for the last thirty years. And everybody's like, "What are you insane?" And he's like, "No, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start a whole new thing." And it's I still don't think he's had another stand-up special. He still tours, but I wonder if he doesn't uh, he's have had, material. He's had- He's had two on Netflix. Has uh, he? Like I'm gonna go look this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he won the glass like a couple months ago, and uh, it's the same style of comedy. You know, he like kind of. Did like, you he ever notice? <laughs> well, it's still observational comedy. That's like his thing, but um, he definitely does. He kind of like contrasts about what it was like for him growing up versus what it's like for his kids growing up. He kind of like definitely discusses that and like little difference in like PC culture how it's yeah. Kind of, how it's changed comedy for, for some, some would argue the worst not the better but you know <laughs> um, speaking of stand up comedy over in Comedy Central they made the biggest mistake I think they've ever made by cancelling uh, oh god oh my god my brain just disappeared I have Comedy Central presents <laughs> it replaced Pulp Comics thank you Pulp Comics was their finest stand up comedy show yeah. It was, we've talked about it before, it was so much better than anything else. They added this weird story. There was a lounge lizard quality to it, which, by the way, I think they also had a show called Lounge Lizards. <laughs> but Comedy Central Presents cool. was so much more mainstream and basic and safe and it looked so generic and it had no style. And that's what, I think they still have Comedy Central Presents. I don't know what it is about Comedy Central and also Cartoon Network. I know there's no relation, but they always like, well, as soon as something's hitting full stride and doing really well, they want to cancel it and start something new. It's like, you know, it's for most things. Some sometimes they, they want to just keep keep banking on it, like with the Chappelle show, and then that just kind of that ended that ended for different reasons. But um, yeah, for a lot of times they'll do that. They'll just like, yeah, all right, this is good. Let's just let's just end it and start something else. And then it's like just why, you know, if it's not broke, why do you keep trying to fix it? You know? And yeah. it just seemed like that was I mean, I don't know. I don't know the uh, behind-the-scenes workings of Comedy Central, why their thought processes are for what you know, why they do what they do. But it seems like, look, if it's if it's uh, you know if it's good and it's working, you know, why would you why would you change uh, recipe for success? But, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe the ratings weren't good because it was like underground comics. You know, the you know the what do you call it, the fringe room at uh, some of the comedy uh, places? Like that. That's where all those new guys were showing up, and they're having alternative comics. Yeah, there, there's there's places like the comedy store where you have, you have the belly room, you have different rooms for like unusual avant-garde acts. You know, yeah. You thrive there, and I guess they wanted something more mainstream, and like you could like you know something a little more economically viable, I suppose. And I think a perfect segue into MTV. We've discussed it once before, but uh, the day they decide to bring in TRL, get rid of a lot of the grunge and alternative music, and push it away and embrace the boy bands was the end of MTV for me. Yeah, same here. That was that was the last nail in the coffin for me for MTV. I was like, all right, I'm out. You know, that's this is what you're doing. I'm going back to. I guess I got to go back to the radio. Yeah, or we had to wait till Sunday this, night. You know? We had to wait till Sunday night for Matt yeah. Pinfield to right, give us right, what we right. needed. Right, exactly. And that's the only time I could hear decent music because this is, you know, pre, pre internet was around, but they you you couldn't have access to music the way you do now. Yeah. What so. was the show that was before them? I'm trying to rack my brain. Was it just called MTV Live? Oh, I think so. I think that was like where. Um, Kennedy hosted. I think yeah, and had that John guy with the gap tooth and the the mop yeah. top head or whatever. And then they they, mm. I think just as we were getting ready for TRL, and they got rid of MTV Live. And if I'm wrong, correct me because I can't remember the name. Remember they had that contest where it was Jesse Camp oh, versus Dave Holmes, right. and we're all like, oh no, clearly uh-huh. Dave Holmes is the one who should know you're gonna go because <laughs> this is a train wreck that stupid people voted for. All right. Exactly. It's when you leave things up to be a popularity contest, you got to accept the results, you know. And this, they wanted Dave Holmes because he was the most accomplished and yeah. talented. We should have known that Trump was going to be president because a fucking stupid shit like Jesse Camp warned us. <laughs> it's happened before. I mean, we, we then a couple years later we had Sam Jaya almost becoming the next American Idol, and then they were, and then like American Idol was like, you know, clearly this is just you know you just want to prop up an idiot. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. It uh, yeah, it's it just when I was just like, oh, okay, you guys are gonna play a lot of all right, uh, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Pink, uh, you know, is whatever appealed to twelve-year-old girls is all they played, and then of course yeah, they I mean, started doing they started doing the rap videos, the the rock metal rap videos like Everlast and uh, Limp oh. Biscuit, where it was a lot of uh, oh, every other word is gonna be like a record scratch. You know, some sort of ear. Yeah, like, don't don't put the song out like that. Just make an alternative version. Exactly. And there wasn't much diversity. It was just like, all right, well, we already have radio. Why do we need, you know what I mean? Yeah. We already know what's what's in the top 40. What's, it was so bright. Everything was so fucking bright. <laughs> the, uh, um, I guess the last thing I want to mention, you know, I have a whole list of things here. I'm going to quickly, uh, so nobody gets upset. Two guys and a girl in a pizza place. I absolutely love that show. Um, Ryan Reynolds. God, yeah, yeah for broke sure. out from that. Whose line is it anyway? Got brought to America, and, and all these shows lasted forever. It seemed. Uh, King of Queens, Will and Grace. I think Will and Grace is really groundbreaking in the fact that it brought a gay character to mainstream television, and he wasn't effeminate. Of course, you know his sidekick right. it was, but it was kind of nice right. to see like a non-cliche gay man. And I don't know if they did it because it was more, oh, it's safer if he doesn't, you know. And I was like, no, because some mm-hmm. gay people just are just like you and me. They just happen to like the same sex. Exactly. I, I remember I had a boss, so I didn't know he was gay until he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm gay. I'm like, I would have never, based upon all the stereotypes I've witnessed my whole life, I would never have guessed that. Right? You know I mean? 
I think it was healthy for America to discover a guy who was just like you and me, except for that one minor twist. And guess what? You also have a minor twist that makes you different than everybody else. Right. Um, Someone specifically, or yeah, yeah, <laughs> you have an arm growing out of the back of your head. It's weird. It just it just dangles there. I give you high fives all the time. You don't even have to look at me like high five. <laughs> well, well, everybody knows now. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I love that pause. You're like, wait, are you talking? I knew that was coming too. The way I said that. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. You, Tony, how up around that? <laughs> the world broke my heart when it took away news radio. I did not know. That it wasn't supposed to end. This, the, did you know that NBC actually renewed it for season six? And then Dave Foley was going to leave anyway because he was going to go off to movies. They were going to make it like New Heart. They were going to take it to some like New Hampshire town. They were going to have a fish out of water tale where they were going to have like the, that cast. You know, and then add some more locals to it. And then all of a sudden the creator said, nah, I'm good. And they just didn't continue. I always thought it was supposed to be kind of just like, oh, well, that's an interesting ending. There's there's, there's closure, but not real closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I don't know. See, the problem with workplace uh, situation comedies is people get mad because they don't want the same cast members to leave because it kind of like ruins the, the formula. But if you're going to make it like a true workplace, that's just natural. <laughs> you, don't, you know, you work, work in a place where even, even as little as five years, you're going to see it changing cast of characters you know yeah. around you because people come and come and go it's the, the way work the way workplaces are you know the uh that 70s show is the one i think they should have pulled it though because it's one of my favorite tv shows but when it gets to season oh, seven is where it starts to falter a little bit but season eight is an epic disaster that doesn't make any sense because why are they still in eric's basement Eric doesn't live there anymore. <laughs> Hyde doesn't live there anymore. Why are they still chilling? It makes it's so weird to me. I guess the uh, the parents just like uh, just love his old friends and love it when they go downstairs to quote unquote <laughs> get high. You know what I mean? Even though it's never really it's never the, uh, really uh, mentioned. But the guy that. who is supposed to replace Topher Grace now Topher's completely gone. Kelso of uh, uh, Oh, shit. Ashton Kutcher is only in, like, six episodes. It was supposed to be Brett Harrison. But Brett Harrison got signed to do, I think it was, I want to say it was Reaper or it was The Loop. And he decided oh, to go right, with right, that, right. that instead. And they were like, oh, shit, now we have no lead. So at the last minute, they pulled Josh Myers from Mad TV and they put him in the lead. They tried to make him the exact opposite of Eric so there's no comparison. They don't feel it's like a replacement. But he is so – I'd rather not have him at all. Like no other – don't add any more characters. Just keep the characters we love. We don't need Josh Myers. He was terrible. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. They, they really didn't need to replace. They could have just – you know. It, it is kind of unusual because it, definitely they are using his parents who are like kind of like – you know, so kind of like a, definitely a, a, an arm of, of the cast. They're definitely, you know, pivotal. To, to the whole to the whole show, but yeah, yeah, it's weird kind of explain why a, a new a new part of the group is just like like part of the gang all of a sudden. You know, it's kind of weird. What they should have done, and I think they kind of started to head in that direction, was that it should have been about like Fez and Jackie, like or or Hyde. You know, like they're like they just call it all grown up or something like that. I know originally it was supposed to be that '80s show, that it wasn't supposed mm-hmm. to be. What was it, nine seasons, and they had to crush it down to four years? 
because at the end of season right. one, it's 19, uh, 1977 when Star Wars comes out. Then you have eight more seasons that have to last between Memorial Day of 1977 to New Year's Eve 1979, and that is ridiculous. Well, see, they're kind of doing what also they did in the 80s show and also what they do currently now in the Goldbergs, where it's never supposed to be like chronologically. It's not supposed to be linear. It's just supposed to be random moments throughout the 70s. Where oh, kind of like, you know what I, mean? I so, did yeah, not know so, that. Oh, really? Because that, cause that way, because... I guess they had it in the beginning. What if this goes on for ten years? We can't still keep calling it the '70s show because if it's if it's linear, you know what I mean. So yeah, that, but, that's but the they way they were. had it They were planning on doing that '80s show, but Fox got nervous and said, "Well, what if people don't continue on? They see that '80s show, they don't know what that is." And then they did the spinoff right. that '80s show, which only lasted thirteen episodes, which I thought was really funny. Um, I actually mm-hmm. enjoyed the no, show thought, quite a bit. Yeah, I thought it was decent, um, but yeah, it didn't have. People just got angry. They thought they were seeing a copy of the 70s show. Yeah. Well, you just need more time. Honestly, if you watch that 70s show, it took a while to get into its groove. And for some reason, they just said 80s show. They just flat out rejected it. I was like, well, give it time. But if it had been successful, we would not have had Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And I wouldn't give that up for anything. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I keep forgetting that um, uh, Glenn Harrison was in that. Yeah, it was like, what, two years later? But when he got fired from that 80s show... He decided to go off on his own with his friends and use the money he got from that 80s show to produce the pilot for uh, Sunny in Philadelphia, and that's what you know got them picked up in some sort yeah. of weird contest, right? I'm not sure. Like I know, I know Rob Mac- McElhenney is like kind of the brains behind it. If you know, he was kind of who is his vision. Yeah. Um, of course, the other guys have just you know they're equal contributors, but it was definitely his vision. And the, the first like unofficial pilot it was just like him and like him and uh you know dennis and max sharing an apartment and it, does, it takes place in la it's nothing to do with philadelphia whatsoever you know and um the reason why it's supposed to be in philadelphia is because they you know well they just wanted something to do with like people who are around during the day while everybody else is at work that was kind of the thing and uh-huh. so they were, first they were struggling they were struggling actors which is why it was supposed to take place in la and they're like what if they just ran a bar they'd always be hanging out you know what i mean so Anyway, not to go off yeah. on a yeah, yeah, we went on real tangent there. Yeah, but that 70s show, <laughs> there's a reason why everybody knows the show, why it still holds up. It's become like the happy days of our generation. But I think it's been more exposed because it's from an independent company who will give it to any station for dirt cheap. It's like all the streaming apps, it's on all the networks. Like, like Copy Central has it, FX has it, MTV has it. It's IFC has it's crazy. It's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I guess I guess you know. I mean, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I guess it's like you know, it's you know, more people are exposed to it, but it doesn't seem as exclusive anymore. I just you know, so I guess it's uh, it's a, it's like a tad bittersweet, I suppose. You know, I yeah. mean, you want you wanted to have you know mass exposure, but at the same time, you don't want it to be you know. What is I think if the careers. All of a sudden, everybody seems to be having some small career revival, but it would be interesting to see, like, the next generation, like, their children, and call it that 90s show. And maybe choose, like, Fez and Jackie or somebody like that to be the, the parents, and they're kind of off the side, like the way Red and Kitty were. And then their grand, yeah. uh, their children or whatever interacting during the 90s, and then you would have cameos here and there from the rest of the cast. The only problem is Danny Masterson is in trouble for apparently attempted rape. <laughs> 
Um, right. Topher Grace all of a sudden had a career revival in the last couple of years, so I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Mila Kunis, you just can't afford her. Yeah, and Ashton Cushion has stepped away from acting. He's, like, doing, you know, you know, he's doing noble work. He's doing, like, you know, for, like, uh, work against human trafficking right, and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. He's just definitely a- acting isn't his, you know, in the forefront of his priorities these days, you know. But I would not be surprised in 10 years that the one person who could pull everybody together who has enough clout and enough money is Ashton Kutcher. Like, he could bring the yeah. 90s show to happen. He's a charismatic. He's a charismatic guy, and I've never heard anybody say a bad word about him. I yeah. think there's anybody who can. Well, get plus together the one major get is Mila Kunis, and that's his wife. <laughs> that's true. That's true. He can. Uh, he can definitely persuade her. All right. Uh, last thing we'll say over in video games, nothing huge, but House of the Dead revolutionizes arcade shooters. That still, it seems like everywhere I go, I see a, a House of the Dead, some version of House of the Dead. Yeah, I still see that, like, in the local movie theater, like, in the side, along the corner with the shooter games. Totally, yeah. The uh, first yeah. time you've had celebrities sign up for voice work, not just a random actor. They weren't huge names, but people who knew comedy knew them uh, very well. Dana Gould did the voice of Gex, which technically he's the first. And immediately after that, we have Phil Hartman as Blasto. Blasto I played the shit out of. I never played Gex. <laughs> I don't remember those, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, Blasto is set in outer space. It's kind of like Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century, uh, where it's just like really retro, and he's a big doofus who's muscle-bound, and he shoots his little blast ray. And it was one of those 3D shooters. Gex, I, I honestly don't remember, but I just thought it was interesting. That was the first time that they hired actors to do voice work. Now, technically... They had actors on the screen, like Corey Hain did some shitty motion capture game, and I think uh, I think Mark Hamill had done one of the Wing Commanders. But now it's so normal; it's actually a huge thing now, where you have to go get celebrities to voice these things. Oh yeah, I've, I've seen like I I I mean I haven't seen the actors playing themselves, but I've seen definitely like you know uh, the modern games. I've seen like like them actually doing actually actual acting work. I've seen Kevin Spacey doing like one for one of the. Call of Duty games or something that yeah. came out a couple years ago. But now, it wasn't a big deal at E3 where they had Keanu Reeves in some video game? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't pay attention too much to the video games world anymore. If it's retro, I kind of know it, but yeah, not too much about current. Uh, and my favorite handheld system of all time, no one remembers it. It was a huge flop here. It was called the Neo Geo Pocket. Neo Geo is legendary for being so insanely expensive that no one bought it. Like a $600... I was about to say, yeah. I remember it was out, but it was, like, ridiculously overpriced. Yeah. <laughs> I might but as well stop thinking about it. They yeah. found a way to put those games in a little cartridge in a handheld, and I bought it about four years after it went out of business when they decided to take whatever was left in the warehouse, package it up in this huge blister pack with the console and six games, and I got it for, like, 50 bucks. You go on, and I sold it, like, just like, oh, I'm done playing this. I don't like a lot of these games. I just got rid of it. And I sold it for like 35 bucks or whatever. It's now on eBay for like $290. I mean, it's just hard just to play it. I mean, if, if anything, not, not even to resell it. Just yeah. It's, it has the, it's the only console I know that had perfect controls for Pac-Man outside of the arcade. 
crazy. Yeah, that's it. Nothing big. I just want to mention those real quick because, you know, we always do a little bit of video games and we don't. I feel like I'm denying somebody. But that is it for this episode of 1998. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute. I, I know I, I don't want you to run along, but there's no way you could not talk about the home run contest. Oh, shit. You're right. You mentioned that last time. Okay, guys. Yeah, that, that could, Fuck it. There's I no could t- never think about 98 with something yeah. about that. I know I there's a lot that happened that year. But. I don't even know why I need to go long or, or why I worry about going long. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's not like I'm a TV show where I have to edit for time. I just don't want to wear anybody's patience. And I got energy to burn. You are correct. This is something that drove me insane, gave me an ulcer. Go ahead and tell them the story of why I weep in the background. <laughs> well, I mean, because, you know, uh, McGuire and Sosa. I mean, talk about a record that was that was been around since 1961 with Roger Maris. You know, broke, broke Babe Ruth's single season home run record of, uh, of 60 home runs. And he hit, you know, 61. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like you know, every day it's like you know, McGuire and Sosa were neck and neck. Who's who's gonna who's yeah. gonna break it first? Who's gonna end up with the, the most home runs at the end of the season? And it was it was riveting. And you got to remember, baseball before that, baseball you know, viewing and attendance was way down because of the strike in '94. People just weren't into baseball anymore. Like really, it was really declining in viewership. And uh, and the NFL and the NBA were made up made up the difference. You know what I mean? And people were just not into baseball like they used to be. This was the resurgence, the shot in the arm that baseball needed. We didn't know that's because everybody was on steroids at the time. Yeah, I had no idea, but it makes sense now. Explains a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're the size of a Buick. <laughs> explains their size and explains why all of a sudden they were able to hit home runs like they never could before. You know. But, but yeah, it... it was definitely exciting. It was it was like you were tuning in every day in the morning to see did he do it again? Did he do it again? Because he might be seemed like they were hitting a home run every day. You know what I mean? I remember at the beginning of the season, the Cubs were sucking ass. They were losing like 14 games out of 20. And I was like, all right, just another season. So I'm from Indiana. I should explain this. I'm from Indiana. You have a choice in Indiana. You have the Cubs, the White Sox, the Tigers, uh, Cincinnati, Cleveland. And, you know, it's that little – well, Cincinnati, I don't even know why anybody chooses them. But I guess it's just because they were so big in the 70s it held out through the 80s and 90s. Uh, The big red machine. Because we didn't live anywhere near that, but I went to Reds games all the time when I was a kid. Um, I chose the Cubs because they were the chosen team for our local station, 55 Fox. And I watched the Cubs like a fiend. I had Cubs everything. I had posters. You know, I watched, when it was time for me to go outside after watching cartoons, I just grabbed a television and I sat outside in the sun while watching baseball games. I was insane for baseball. And you're correct. The strike made me lose interest in baseball. But all of a sudden, in 98, I started to get crazy for it again. And not only was I... I was a huge McGuire fan, too. Uh, Jose Katsenko fan. I had posters and shirts and stuff of those guys. And I was like, oh my god, the two huge guys that I really want to see, and they're battling it out. But no one remembers that the Cubs were potential World Series contenders. Everybody's like, they came out of nowhere like a phoenix because they were sucking ass in the early part of the season. They're going to go. They got their ass handed to them. I was so stressed out from that and trying to graduate from college that I got my first ulcer. <laughs> well, also, like, you know, you know what's funny about baseball? The Cubs and the Cardinals have always been rivals. You know what I mean? They're like, you know, they're like, they're, they're geographically St. Louis and Chicago are like close to each other. And they've always been rivals. And it just so happens that, like, the, you know, these two star sluggers are, are rivals, so they're trying to break this uh, home run 
competition, which is really exciting. Even if you're a neutral fan like me, I have no vested interest in the Cubs or the Cardinals. It was just great to see these two Goliaths, you know what I mean, try to topple this home run records, which stand for, like, you know, since the 60s, you know? And there's only one person who's done it since Babe Ruth. You know, at that time it was Roger Maris. So you're talking about somebody breaking a record that's, you know, been around forever. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like a lot of those records should be removed because they were tainted with steroids. I mean, you had Bonds and Bonilla and stuff like that. and I, I don't think well, it's fair to choose up. It's weird. It, it seems they need to get into a gray area about what's performance enhancing and what isn't. Everybody in the 70s and 60s was on, on amphetamines. You know what I mean? Is that, uh, you know what I mean? Is that performance enhancing? You know, uh, Mickey Mantle was drunk half the time. I mean, you could say that's performance dehancing, but maybe for him it was enhancing. Help them, like, you know, get loose. Calm. It was hard to say. <laughs> right, you know? So, yeah, I mean, technically there should be an asterisk tonight, you know, but I hear you. The, uh, you know, so, you know, technically we should end the show here because I graduated December of 1998. And we always said this was a show that will cover like middle school to yeah, college or upper I, years. That's, that's the year I graduated college too. I graduated in 98 and that was, you know, that's the, the end uh, of my school experience, getting my adult experience. Yeah. But I figured let's just finish out the decade. We got one more with 1999 where we're going to party like freaks. And discuss how we all lost our minds over the Y2K and Will Smith. Well, <laughs> if, if we're being honest, I was still kind of an immature dickhead for another five years after 1998, and probably further than that, if I'm being honest. But, yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, I, I'm still stumbling right now, but no, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of wanted to go to 50 episodes, and we'd still have like five more to go. We might take a break. We might come back next year, but I do want to do the Saturday Night Live sketch show because um, I was like, there's so much stuff I want to. You know, I talked about 2000, 2001, like the Garage Rock Revival, you know, like something like that. So we might come back. I'm not going to go back to the 80s. Uh, it's too far gone. I think a lot of, like, if we go back from 80 to 85, I don't know if we would cover any ground that we did already kind of cover. Uh, I mean, even though even though it wasn't, we, we touched on topics that took place in the early 80s that weren't in, like, the chronological 80s, 85 on up, but we, you know, we did certain episodes based on certain topics. Yeah. Right? So that took place in that time period anyway. Yeah, yeah, we did the birth of MTV and Nintendo and Atari and stuff like that. I mean, what are we going to do? Talk about Wang Chung? Uh, hey, let's talk <laughs> about, uh, you know, uh, voodoo economics and uh, Flashdance. Let's talk about that. Yeah. We're, we're not, and also, people have to remember, these are, it's very, you know, it's very subjective. These are things that touched our lives. You know, there's other things that happened. As far as the geopolitical spectrum, yeah. Not, but as a, as a kid, we weren't really aware. Yeah, I don't want to talk about like I was thinking about this episode. Should we talk about the Clinton impeachment? No, because it's not it's not pop culture. So fuck it. Uh, but the baseball thing was so borderline. These guys were rock superstars of baseball, so that totally counts. And yeah, I mean, normally we don't talk about sports, but this was kind of like this is kind of an epic moment. Yeah, in in, in pop culture. For me, um, I we started off. Did we start in eighty five or eighty six? I don't recall. Maybe uh, 86. But it's kind of like also discussing when we were aware of pop culture. If I go earlier than 1985, 86, whatever, I'm going to be like, yeah, Mass of the Universe. That's it. G.I. <laughs> Joe. Right. So it just doesn't seem like it's very uh, – it'd be like 12-minute episodes. So, um, yeah, the next one will probably be the final episode. But if we decide to do maybe a handful more like next year where we discuss the early 2000s, uh, that's still mm-hmm. I'm still open to that. 
2003 is kind of eventful as far as baseball is concerned, as far as like the Cubs making a run and Steve Bartman, et cetera. But, you know. Yeah, we'll think about it. Uh, but I do want to take a break if we do anything. So uh, 1999 will be coming up next. And uh, Tony, thank you again for another great episode. Oh, my pleasure, sir. My pleasure as always. All right, everybody. Check us out on uh, Facebook and Twitter under Retro Rock Entertainment. And listen to me stutter and slur as I try to remember what I was going to say. <laughs> um, and that is it. Everybody have a good night. Yeah. I wonder what it would be like to do this podcast on weed. On weed. <laughs> go, team, go. You. <laughs>